Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Long Thread Media, publishers of Spinoff, Handwoven, Piecework, and Little Looms magazines. Find us online at longthreadmedia.com. Trinway Silks is where weavers, spinners, knitters, and stitchers find the silk they love. Select from the largest variety of silk spinning fibers, silk yarn, and silk threads and ribbons at trinwaysilks.com. You'll discover a rainbow of colors thoughtfully hand-dyed in Colorado. Love natural? Trinway's array of wild silks provide choices beyond white. If you love silk, you'll love Trinway Silks, where superior quality and customer service are guaranteed. I'm your host, Long Thread Media co-founder Anne Marrow. Sarah Newbert is a fiber artist and non-traditional tapestry weaver. She creates on scales as small as a pair of earrings and as large as a giant room. We're looking forward to having her teach for Weave Together in Loveland, Colorado, beginning February 25th, 2024. So Sarah, thanks for being here. Of course, I'm really excited. I have actually only ever taken three weaving classes in my whole life, and yours was one of them. Well, do you know how many weaving classes I've taken? Uh, I've taken zero weaving, zero weaving classes. Really? Actually. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) How how did that come to be? I I read something that you said that if I had gone through the the traditional processes, I might have done this differently. But how is it that you have not taken weaving classes? I'm just a very stubborn person, also with a high level of social anxiety. Uh And I'm also a perfectionist. I don't like people to see me make mistakes. And I think that's probably the biggest detractor for me ever wanting to learn from somebody who knows more than me. I don't recommend this method. I just, this is just me. I prefer to, you know, make my mistakes in private Mm -hmm. and explore on my own. And I guess, you know, on the other side of it, I'm a bit of a non-traditionalist in general. And so sometimes I can rebel against set in stone. These are the rules and this is how you do it. And one thing that I think contributed to that was when I was in community college Mm -hmm. in 2001, I took a photography class and everything that I loved about photography, I lost because all of a sudden I knew how to do it right. And those happy accidents that I was getting before that made these like really cool Effects in the photos that I couldn't explain. I couldn't unlearn what I had learned. I knew too much and I couldn't have happy accidents anymore. So that is so interesting because the class that I took from you, I know that you're not a traditional tapestry weaver, but in some cases, in in some ways it was, it covered a lot of the fundamentals of simple tapestry that I would have expected to have as part of a, you know, a sort of a traditional, this is the way you learn your Raya knots and things like that. So (laughs) I was going to start asking you, how did you go from the straight and narrow and get onto this more experimental path? And and now I almost feel like I didn't need to turn it around and say, how did you go from this, you know, (laughs) freeform path to something that obviously follows the rules of over and under in in a way. I mean, there's a fundamental structure. There's a, Mm -hmm. there's a, the selvages have to be straight. There are certain 
essentials of what you do that you've blown my mind. Your mind is blown. My mind mind is blown. blown. Well, like I said, I don't recommend it. I think (laughs) there is a lot to be said for learning from people. Uh And since I ended up teaching myself or becoming a teacher myself, there's a really special energy that happens in that instructional space. I just skipped it. I think, I don't know. I, I, everything I know about weaving in terms of, you know, the traditional sense, in terms of technique, I started out learning from Google, just looking up weaving terminology and looking up, I definitely watched a couple of YouTube videos, but I think there's also a side of me that just has maybe just, I think I just had some like natural facility for it. So I just, it was just kind of cobbling together from here and there, like all of these different things. And so I did want to be a good weaver when I started. Mm -hmm. So I did learn, you know, the terminology and some of the technique and stuff. And I was very, very upset when my selvages weren't straight. I remember that. Working on tension and working on all of those things, learning how to do geometric shapes, learning how to blend, all of those kinds of things. But uh, once I had those fundamentals down, I was like, okay, I'm going to move away from this. This isn't me. So here we are. And was it, I'm going to use the word tapestry because I I think that that's probably the closest, but was it tapestry weaving that specifically spoke to you? I mean, some people know that they want to become rug weavers or that they want to do twills or something like that. Was it specifically tapestry that spoke to you as something you wanted to pursue? The way this all started was actually through me getting a repetitive motion injury in my shoulder from knitting too much. Oh. And... I missed working with yarn so much mm-hmm. that I just started looking around for anything else that I could do that would maybe use a different muscle group. And so I found somebody, it was a blogger, I think, like a lifestyle blogger. And she had just an old 70s textural wall hanging, you know, one of those like jute monstrosities right. with the the shag and the and they're kind of revolting, but also kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, I bet I could do that. I could do that. Right. You don't need knitting needles for that. And so really, that was it. And the other thing that appealed to me about it was that with knitting, a lot of the time you're confined to a pattern. And like I said, I don't really like to like follow rules and instructions. So this felt like a way to blend my love for fine art mm-hmm. with my love for fibers and use it as a freer expression mm-hmm. with yarn. Yeah, that makes sense. It, there's sort of a tension between formal. When I look at some of your work, there are areas that are very simple and areas that are sort of divided by texture and there's parts that are more simple. So I feel like there's this tension between something that's kind of more wild and something that's a Mm. little bit more, you know, rows and columns. Yes. And we definitely, I think with my work, texture is the number one thing that gets me excited. I think that I'm mostly inspired by you know, moss and lichen and Mm -hmm. weird forms in nature. But they're only interesting insofar as they contrast with what's around them. (laughs) And so I think that's probably where that comes from in my work. 
That's true. But I do want to say something because I let something slip a second ago. Yes. That I don't agree with. Okay. Where I said I wanted to blend my love for fibers with my love for fine art. I don't believe there's necessarily a dichotomy between the two. Yeah. And that's something that I've struggled with, wrestled with a little bit in my own practice. View, starting to view my work as art, getting away from this mindset of, you know, oh, it's just crafty right. women's work stuff. But moving into the idea that art is everywhere. Art mm-hmm. is a way of life. Useful things can be art. It's not just art because it only exists for someone to look at, right? Right. I think it took me probably seven or eight years before I felt like I could view my work as art. Mm -hmm. That was always my intention from the beginning was to make art with yarn. But it took me that long to kind of move past that mental block in my own head that I'd internalized that if you're working with yarn, you're not making art. Uh So when I heard myself say that just now, I was like, oh, shoot. (laughs) Fair enough. Well, I remember reading an article not that long ago. I think it might have been the New York Times. I'm not sure. But about is fiber art art? And I think a lot of us were kind of like, didn't we solve this already? It didn't. Yeah. Have you met Sheila Hicks? (laughs) (laughs) Right. And I thought I solved it in my own mind, but apparently not. So I guess I still have some work to do. (laughs) So, you know, you say that you don't want to make mistakes in front of people. And so you have learned a lot of this on your own. But at the same time, you're creating a space in your classes where, you know, you're inviting people to learn something new. So yes. How do you approach that as a teacher? Well, neurologically, we learn better when we make mistakes. Mm-hmm. That's how things become more embedded mm-hmm. into our memory. So I've begun to embrace that more as I've moved forward with my own practice. Mm-hmm. So I have tried to encourage that when I teach. And I haven't taught in a while. But I do actually try to kind of bring in that attitude of here's the correct way to do it. But as long as you can make something that doesn't fall apart Uh and you like how it looks, awesome. Like, that's great. I can teach you these basic skills. I can teach you how to make something that won't fall apart. I can teach you how to do it right. Uh But don't stop there push yourself a little bit further, try something out. Every element of my work that I really enjoy is usually it comes because I made a mistake in a piece before and was like, okay, how am I going to work with this? And then, you know, it becomes a part of my practice. And so I, yeah, I just really encourage people to step out and find out What's the thing that you have in you to make that nobody else does? And instead of trying to replicate something that you've seen somebody else do, just try it. Like, what do you have to lose? One of the things that I tend to see in tapestry or woven wall art is playing with a riot of color. And your work really celebrates neutrals as this palette for texture. Mm -hmm. 
Have you worked with a lot of color in the past and find that you just come back to neutrals or is it, how do you think about color? I'm working on my aversion to color currently. (laughs) Aversion, that's a strong word. (laughs) I know, but it's true. I started out at the very beginning of my experiments into weaving. I started out buying a lot of colors Mm -hmm. because I liked what other people did with them. But the more I played around, the more I found that the fibers that I'm drawn to are always as close as possible, as as close as we can get to the raw form. So really, you know, like loosely spun wools or, you know, linens with a lot of slubs and just natural texture. And so the more I experience texture, the more I realize that, like, I just like this stuff. Uh-huh as it is. I don't want to put color on it. I want to celebrate the textural aspect of this stuff. And I found that working with unusual materials started to direct where the pieces would go. Mm -hmm. And it would kind of show me new techniques, new ways to work with the fibers that helped me to celebrate those textural, really rustic raw elements that I love so much. And so the more I kind of went into that space, the more I realized that like color is just a distraction from what I really like to see. And it's not that I don't like color. I have a lot of color in my wardrobe. I have a lot of color in my home. But in my work, something that I'm spending so much time with, I just want to just revel in that stuff that just really grabs me. So I think that's kind of how my work has evolved. But now I'm actually doing a series that's going to have some neon colors in it. Oh, that's quite a contrast. (laughs) Right. So I'm using all of these just raw undyed fibers and then throwing neon into it. Why? I couldn't tell you. I think it's just to be like, okay, here's a color. See what you do with it. Just to grow Uh as an artist and see where it takes me. And one of the things I've noticed is that you, in some cases, have worked on very small things. You did a really cool cuff for Handwoven Magazine, and you've done things as small as earrings. But then you're also doing things that are room-sized installations. Uh And I don't see a lot of people necessarily working on quite such a dramatic difference of scale. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think think if I could make anything in the whole world, I would make entire woven environments that are just sensory, just tactile spaces that feel like cocoons, that feel like just little sanctuaries of fiber. And so I love to work on that huge scale because it hints at that. I don't know how I'm ever going to make that happen. I'm going to have to probably like write a giant grant proposal or something. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a little intimidating, but I hope to do that sometime in my life. Mm -hmm. But I love making really small things as well, because number one, you don't have to work on it for 
six months before you feel some sense of accomplishment. So it kind of helps me kind of stay in that flow state where I feel like there's measurable progress happening and I'm actually doing things. And the other side of it is I love to, with the jewelry, I love to give someone something that they can wear on their body that feels a little bit like that environment that I want to create. So it's like, it's not a giant cocoon that you can wrap yourself in, but it's this tactile soft thing on your wrist. Yeah. And it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a touch point of that, that safety and that cocooning. And you are going to be teaching for us for Weave Together in February, which we're really excited about. And one of the things yes. you're, you're teaching is weaving with unusual materials. And another one is is textural weaving. When you say unusual materials, is that most of what you've talked about are plant-based, although I suppose wool as well, but a sort mm-hmm. of raw, natural materials? Yes, I think for that, we're going to have to see what I come up with mm-hmm. for that class. because a lot of what I do when I teach that class is just go out and forage for things. So when I say weaving with non-traditional materials, I just mean it's not yarn. Oh, okay. So it could be a twig or a piece of grass, but it could also be a piece of tinsel or a piece of fabric Mm -hmm. or um, I've used... I've used human hair before. You know, I don't think I'm going to be bringing a giant bag of human hair. There is a long and rich tradition of textiles and textile art using, but that's not really what our contemporary (laughs) tends to go for. (laughs) That would be noteworthy. Yeah. People might not want to hang out with me if I show up with a huge bag of human hair. (laughs) But I think that I think that you learn a lot, actually, about weaving itself when you try to work something into a weaving that's a little bit trickier to play with and you learn a little bit more about structure and how to make things come together, how to, how to nestle elements together. So I think it's a really worthwhile thing to do. And it just kind of pushes the boundaries beyond, okay, I can make cloth, but I can also make something three-dimensional. Yeah. And I could, I can take some, maybe some meaningful artifact that I own and turn that into a piece of art. Yeah. So we're just going to play around and we'll see what I come up with. And I'll probably issue an invitation for people to bring their own materials if they'd like to do that as well. Yeah. And your textural weaving class, is that more of a technique class for how to use different, you know, hand manipulated techniques or how, what is that Mm -hmm. class like? That one will be with yarn Mm -hmm. and (laughs) potentially maybe a few different weights and textures of yarn, Mm -hmm. but just that idea of creating texture in a piece that stands out against a plain woven texture, how to create dimensionality, how to even if you have a special yarn that you really want to showcase in a piece, what are some techniques that you could look at to really bring out what you love about that yarn? So we'll be doing things like 
Um, we'll learn sumac and raya and pile leaves, but we'll do it in a way that's potentially a little less structured, potentially just a little bit more playful. Yeah, just kind of get away from flat surfaces a little bit and yeah. move into just trying things. Yeah. Like I said, just trying things and see where it goes. I had this idea that in my office slash craft space that in order to make things more soundproof that I would weave on, you know, those basic handheld looms that I would just weave these pieces for the wall and they would be soundproofing. And then I realized I have an ongoing recurring moth problem. And oh boy. Yes. And then I realized that I was trying to use essentially lace weight yarn. <laughs> I gave up the project. Uh-huh. <laughs> Maybe this needs a little more thought. <laughs> uh-huh. You have to battle the elements sometimes. <laughs> yes. But in terms of living with textiles, actually, one thing I wanted to ask you about is a recent project that you had that is woven mending. And mm-hmm. I follow you on Instagram, so I remember seeing the first post and I was like, oh, that was cool. And it turns out that a lot of people thought that was very cool. And so I know that you have brightly colored furniture in your house Mm -hmm. and it's even more brightly colored because you have mended it with weaving. (laughs) Yes, indeed. I was. Yeah. Okay. so here's how that all went down. I have three cats. They ruined my couch and I was like, how am I going to fix this? Because I'm not getting a new couch. So what can I, what can I take from my skill set and apply to this problem? And I do a lot of clothing mending. Mm -hmm. I just enjoy that. I think it's really fun and exciting to beautify a piece, to take something that's damaged and turn it into a design feature. Right. And so I just decided that I was going to use those same skills on my couch. So I did it on a large scale. I used rope instead of yarn. And it turned out really cool. Mm-hmm. I really like it. And the internet also liked it. Yes. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so... It was really unexpected. Mm-hmm. I did not expect that to be the thing that I would go viral for in my life. And <laughs> I did a lot of thinking about the significance of it culturally and how we're all just so, and I talk about this in the tutorial that I made, but how this culture of disposability that we live in is so exhausting And it's always saying, you need something new. You need to spend your money on this. And it has to look like this. And it's like, when was the last time I sat and asked myself, what do I think is beautiful? Uh Right? Because I discovered weaving from a mom blog because I was like, here's somebody with cool style. I don't feel like I have cool style. Let's find out what this person is doing. And maybe they can tell me what's beautiful. And the older I get, the more I'm like, screw that man <laughs> like what do what do i love what makes me come alive what makes me feel like i'm home uh-huh. and so i think mending is a really cool way that we can all use our creativity to take what we already have and beautify it in a way that's totally unique to us it's just it's just darning 
basically. It's just traditional. Darning's been around thousands and thousands of years. We've been doing it. But it's a small symbol, I think, of a a little shift in thinking. Yeah. And a way to just practice that. You know, speaking of unusual materials, I mean, rope is not inherently an unusual material, but it's not that common of a weaving material. True. And the rope that you used was quite brightly colored. In some cases, you know, your couch was sort of a, how, what would you call that color? It was kind of a reddish. The chair that I did? The chair, yeah, sorry. That's like, I mean, it's orange. It's orange, okay. It's orange. It's like a tweed 1960s orange, very bright. And then there's, there's you know, you've got green rope and other colors of, so there's something colorful hanging around that you... Right? Yeah. That's funny that I just like totally forgot to even mention that when I was talking about foraying into color. Yeah. But I think with that project, I was like, well, I'm just going to use all the colors. Mm-hmm. And part of it was like, I'm doing something that's going to be like on YouTube and I want people's eyes to be caught by it. Right. Just because I believe so deeply in this project and like teaching people to rescue their furniture. I was like, I'm going to get as many people to like look at this as I can. But then I was like, as I was working with it, I was like, I actually freaking love this. It's so awesome. And I'm loving having it in my space. I have a neutral couch and I've always, yeah, I've gravitated towards neutrals up until pretty recently. But now it's just like, just bring it on, man. So you worked on your couch. And then when it became clear that this was something that was really catching people's attention, you said, okay, I'm going to set up this other project that I can walk people through. Mm -hmm. And having three cats, you had more than one piece of furniture that could stand to be mended. Um, Yeah. Although the chair I actually got from just a Craigslist post that somebody was going to throw it away. And so I was like, this chair is super cool. I don't want it to get thrown away. I wanted to make this tutorial available to everybody Uh so that they could they could kind of jump on the weaving train and start fixing their stuff too right and it's got a modest thousand views on youtube but that's potential like 1000 couches saved from a landfill yeah which is incredible that is incredible and you set it up as a pay what you wish project right yeah you can just watch it for free or you can Donate a few bucks via Venmo if you want. Right. I think having an energetic exchange is important in a lot of spaces. And I was really grateful for the people that donated. And every once in a while, you know, somebody will throw me five bucks here and there. And it just is a reminder that this thing that I put out into the world energetically is still rippling out. So cool. Did you have to adapt the techniques that you use in your art to work on this functional three-dimensional project? Yes. Yes, I did. I had to adapt it a lot because it has to be a lot sturdier than something that's just going to hang on the wall Uh or something that's just going to go on somebody's wrist, doesn't get banged up the way a piece of furniture does. That's why I chose the rope. It's very sturdy. I chose really densely spun rope and I used really sturdy warp yarn as well 
And as I am working, as I'm weaving, I'm actually sewing the weaving into the fabric of the chair as I go. Mm -hmm. So it's not just a patch that sits on top. It's actually attached to the fabric underneath. So they work together. The frayed fabric underneath doesn't it doesn't have a lot of strength to it, but it does hold it to the frame and then the woven part over top, that strengthens the upholstery. So it just makes sure that it's I'm trying to figure out how can I say this that it will sound like something um that people can visualize. You know that I don't know if this is true, but as an as a knitter, I'm kind of picturing the darning where you follow the existing yarn, not not so much in the literal sense, but in that way that you're coupling with the something that's giving out and coupling something mm-hmm. new to it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And there's also the fact that a chair already has a shape. Mm-hmm. So you have to do a lot of kind of tricky warping around corners and joining rows in certain spots. And it's definitely a challenge, but a doable one. And the end result is so cool. It seems like it might be kind of hard on your hands. If I was doing it full time, yeah. Okay. I probably spent on the the chair, it was probably a solid 12 hours of weaving. But 12 hours, you know, if you space it out, it's not going to be a huge deal. I feel like if you did have, you know, if you had carpal tunnel or arthritis or something, it might be a little bit tricky, especially the part about attaching the woven portion to the upholstery underneath. And then when you get to the very end of your warped section and there's not a lot of space left and you're just kind of like, shoving the yarn in there in between the warp threads, it can be a little bit tricky. So yeah, there are definitely some limitations. In a very small way, that reminds me of when I was taking that class from you and down at the bottom, it was really easy. And up at the top, it got much harder. (laughs) (laughs) Remind me what class that was. I don't remember what it was called. It was held in somebody's backyard studio. And I think it might have been- That was my very first one. That was my very- no, that was my second. That was my second workshop ever. And your materials were perfectly put together. You had a little booklet that was perfectly put together. All of the, you know, I still have the loom from it. <laughs> <laughs> That's my perfectionism coming into play. That's, you know, why I can't take classes from anybody else. Because I'm like, I have to be in charge because everything has to be right. <laughs> It's not great, but it makes for a very cute weaving workshop. <laughs> it made for a very cute weaving workshop. And and the remarkable thing, I think, is that you didn't, that didn't drift over onto your students. You're, it was very, and you can play with this now. You, you can try this out. You can combine these techniques now. It wasn't like, and you will do it my way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm trying, it's like a do as I say, not as I do, because a lot of these things that I teach my students, I'm still learning and we're just learning them together. And I'm just saying, this is what I wish I would have told myself at the beginning of a lot of different ventures in my life, not just weaving, not just, but just this idea of letting go of that pressure to do it right. 
And it's funny because I say like, oh, I'm such a rebel and I don't want to do it right. But I do put so much pressure on myself if I'm not not necessarily doing it right, I guess. That's not necessarily the right term. I would say I want to do it as awesome as possible. Just make it as cool as I can. And sometimes you can't hold yourself to that standard. Sometimes you just got to be like, this is what it is. Well, what's hard about that is that right is a binary. It's a yes or no. And Mm -hmm. as cool as it can possibly be is unachievable. Yes, definitely. (laughs) I want to look up this quote. Hold on. I think it was Maya Angelou who said she would write and instead of giving herself the pressure to make it as good as it could be, she said, I would stop when I knew it was good. It was as good as I could make it. So I think there's a difference between having this ideal of making this thing that is just the most awesome thing in all of creation, which is unattainable. Right. But there is a level that you can reach where you're like, okay, I really put all of myself into this. And I personally, at the place where I am now in my practice, I can't make it better than this right now. And just knowing that that's when you stop. You say like, this is the best I can do. And isn't that just like freeing? Just being like, okay. No. Like maybe that's what do your best means. Right. Something we throw around so much, but it's like when you know that you've actually done that, it's so freeing and so comforting to just be like, okay, I did it. Well, and also that if you think, okay, that that's the best that I can do for this and there'll be another chance in the future that, you know, this is a snapshot of a moment. This is a, this is the best I can do at this moment. And then for the next, Sarah Lamb talks about working in series, you know, do something, finish it and start the next one. So. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's something people commonly talk about to say that weaving and fiber arts and crafts maybe are something that they do for self-care or mindfulness, but this is something that you've actually given a lot of thought to and approached very intentionally. Can you just talk a little bit about how you see weaving being part of your, I I guess I'm just going to use the phrase self-care? At this point, weaving is something that I just do. It's such a part of my regular life that I don't know how I would live without it. Uh But when I was first learning to weave and connecting to it on such a deep level, it was astonishing how healing it was to spend time at the loom and just process what was going on in my life. And I didn't expect that from that practice. I just, I loved it so much that I started doing it every day. And then I started noticing myself healing (laughs) from anxiety mainly, but also just healing from past relationships. I would just sit there and just whatever came to mind, I would just weave it out, you know? (laughs) And after a while, I just realized like, huh, I'm like sleeping better and my 
anxiety is a little better and I'm a little less reactive in certain situations. And so then I just was like, okay, well, then I need to know what the, what is this about? <laughs> and so I became a bit of a neuroscience nerd for a little while because I just, I couldn't believe it. And one of the people that I looked into a lot was um, a Hungarian psychologist called uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, and he has a very long name. I won't try to spell it like ever, <laughs> but he introduced the concept of uh, flow theory. Uh, yes. And he was a kid during World War II. And after all of that devastation and trauma, he began to observe the people around him as they kind of reintegrated into their lives after the war. And he noticed that the people who were able to move forward and continue to grow, continue to enjoy life, continue to find meaning, you know, just essentially the people that were healing uh, were people that had a regular creative practice or a practice where they were able to enter a state of flow. And the way he kind of defines it is the state where you just kind of lose track of time. Right. You're so invested in the thing that you're doing that like you don't realize you're hungry or you have to go to the bathroom and you're just like watching this project or process that you're that you're involved in. You just watch it grow and you're essentially collaborating with the project instead of you doing a thing it's like you're participating in a thing and I was really surprised that he mentioned weaving as one of the things that gets people into that flow state it was like weaving and like rock climbing and a few other things that he said where you can where the there's enough of a challenge to keep you interested but not so much challenge that you get frustrated And there's like a visual, measurable way to determine your progress in the thing. So, you know, that's all like, that's theoretical. But I really realized that, you know, that was the thing that was happening to me. I was in this state that's very similar to the state that you get into when you meditate. And so when you're doing that, you're creating new neural pathways you're actually essentially rebuilding connections in your brain and it can help to heal so many um, mental health issues. And yeah, so I just, I just stumbled on it, got like really obsessed with it for a while and then was like, well, okay, like that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. And even though it was already happening unintentionally, I started to approach it with intention. So I would sit at the loom and I would ask myself, like, okay, what, what's the big question today? Mm-hmm. What's the challenge that I'm working through? Or what feels heavy? And I did that long enough that it just became a practice. And I don't always do it now. A lot of the time now I'm just, like, watching X-Files or something. <laughs> but, but there's that kind of cellular memory that I think still just helps me retain that balance. And I do still return to the loom with a more meditative intention as part of a regular practice too. So it just kind of took over my my life and my attempts to like 
regulate myself and just be in the world. You know, you use the word practice and practice is something that you also talk about for meditation. And so this or yoga or art as a practice, too. So I kind of like that way that all of those come together in that term. And I like the term practice, too, because it's like you're practicing, like you're not mastering. You're just practicing. Uh Yeah. You're exploring. You're learning. There's actually a connection between weaving and occupational therapy that is taught, that speaks to the sort of the healing power of weaving. I think it was Mary Meeks Atwater who was a physical therapist as well as a weaver. And there used to be looms in occupational therapy departments in in universities. Yes. um, When I was doing a lot of research about this, and I, of course, don't remember the name of the therapist, maybe it's the one that you were talking about, but it was somebody who was using weaving with kids that had attachment trauma, and they would weave with their caregiver. A lot of the times it was maybe kids that were adopted that came from really difficult situations and that just didn't form a bond with anyone during those really critical developmental stages. And because of the way weaving rewires those synapses in the brain, it was actually a really useful therapy with these kids and their caregivers to develop a strong attachment and um, a closer bond. I love the way that the metaphorical and the literal are kind of coming together there, you know, right? weaving a bond. <laughs> you think mm-hmm. about warmth and all those good things. <laughs> I always say that weaving is the universal metaphor. Yeah. You can apply it to anything. It's you true. really can. That's true. It's so cool. Yeah. So, Sarah, what are you up to next? What's the next thing you're working on? The next thing that I'm going to start on, hopefully in the next week or two, I have a very, very, very long note in my phone that has song lyrics because I am also a musician, but I was like a non-practicing musician for the last 10 years. My sweetheart and I have just started a new music project, but I kept writing and I have all of these lyrics and I'm never going to use them at this point. I don't care about them anymore. Like they're eight years old, 10 years old, but there's like that one little phrase or one little line in there that I think every once in a while I just stumbled upon something that just feels true. So I'm going to turn those phrases into little tapestries. And that's a way of taking something that I always intended to share and still sharing it, even though I'm not going to share it in the way I originally intended. That sounds really cool. I hope it's cool. (laughs) I've never woven text before. And so that's also something I'm excited to try. It'll probably be super frustrating (laughs) and really slow, like way slower than I want it to be. But weaving is slow and you just have to, you just have to embrace the slowness. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Sarah. I can't wait to see you at Weave Together. Maybe you'll be my first and fourth weaving classes. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that would be amazing. I would love it. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. The Maya Angelou quote that Sarah referenced is from an interview in the Paris Review. 
George Plimpton asked, how do you know when it's what you want? Maya Angelou replied, I know when it's the best I can do. It may not be the best there is. Another writer may do it much better, but I know when it's the best I can do. I know that one of the great arts that the writer develops is the art of saying, no, now I'm finished, bye, and leaving it alone. I will not write it into the ground. I will not write the life out of it. I won't do that. Thanks to Trinway Silks for sponsoring this episode. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again. <laughs>